0: Guys, welcome to our Three Men on Air podcast. Of course, you'll observe that we have changed the name of our podcast. The podcast is uh, it's all something altogether new for all of us, and we're bootstrapping. So that also means that we are on very low budget. In fact, no budget. We are using the free version of Zoom here. But yeah, from now onwards, we'll be calling it the Three Men on Air podcast, and. Uh, Today's episode is about Yuval Noah Harari's article, uh, The World After Coronavirus. We have attached the article as a link to the podcast and we'll be discussing that article. Uh It offers great insights about the kind of world we will be living in. Of course, the choice of that depends on all of us and the kind of systems that we will adopt once the crisis has ended. So, I'll move forward and we'll move forward and listen to what Karan has to say on the article. Thanks Anas. I think um, Yuval
1: Oval Harari is an excellent author. He has written some very classic 21st century novels that have been a huge hit both commercially and critically and I think it's very important for us to understand where Yuval Oval Harari's idea of line of thinking comes from. With that said, I think the major important point in his article, The World After Coronavirus, has to be the one that certainly caught my eye is the fact that how the world will look completely different. As Subodh had said in the last podcast, a matter of generation of historical cultural changes and behavioral changes in our society has happened in a matter of weeks. With that said, I think the most important point I felt in that podcast is how these emergency measures that have been deployed in all sorts of countries, in all sorts of economies, and of varying suffering from the virus in varying circumstances, are going to last longer than the emergency itself, and how these exigency measures will now become commonplace. How they will become a norm in our lives. For example, the article talks about uh, surveillance systems. How China has been uh, tracking the, uh, the potential threats and isolated people, people who are ordered to be into quarantine, with the use of their very, very advanced face recognition technology. Something we can relate to from the Hong Kong protests, where people used umbrellas to block off their faces or uh, on those cameras. And in certain cases, even those uh, towers down. And in that sense, it comes to the point where these exigency measures or these emergency measures that are existing in the very first place right now to help our society defeat the coronavirus might not be here, uh, might not, might be still here after the virus is defeated. And the article also mentioned that, you know, it might be another coronavirus or it might be another Ebola strain. Or it might be some other uh, another virus, another strain of a previously existing virus that might have the government on its toes and say, let's keep these measures in place even till now. And that becomes a very problematic incident. What do you think about this, Shubha? Yeah, uh, so yeah, I completely agree. Yuval Noah's,
2: uh, Noah Harari's uh, take on the new normal that will be set after this uh, coronavirus epidemic uh, pandemic is over is absolutely fascinating and also prophetic in some sense. And uh, other than uh, the points that you put out uh, regarding uh, government control and government's uh, uh, overreaching of the government institutions, uh, there, there is another thing that uh, caught my eye how the uh, relationship between the government, the media, the authorities, the institutions, and the public changes with regard to trust. Because, uh, you know, uh, with uh, social media and uh, other sources of inf- information all floating around the internet and all floating around through conversations and narratives, uh, people uh, have developed an understanding that there might be a chance that the government would be overreaching, invading their private lives, and uh, the government would uh, control the flow of information and the extent of information. And how would that affect the trust that people have on government and their institutions as well as the media? So that is something that really caught my eye.
0: Thank you, Sabo. So, um, if if I put into perspective the article and the way I understand it is that he does not really prophesize that this would be the certain world we will live in. In fact, he says that, listen, we have choices to make and given the choice that we will make, we will decide the future course of the world. So he gives us these choices, he says that the first is between uh, totalitarian surveillance and citizen empowerment. And the second, he says, is between nationalist isolation and global solidarity. With regard to the first choice, of course, we have seen across the world in countries where surveillance has been used as a means of tackling the virus. An example of that can be what happened in China. Accident use of technology, but of course, we do not know uh, the details of it. On the other hand, we saw what happened in South Korea. They did use technology, but the positive aspect of it, they accelerated testing, and they managed to, in a way, tackle the virus with more uh, transparency in an open society. I think there are choices that we will be making. Some situations do come up as as so dictatorial that the only choice that you can make is the tough one. Uh, but I, I, I it's the tougher one. But I don't think that we have arrived such a situation. Hi, Anas. Um and it's a question to both you
1: and Shabob. I think we've all read about now, now, like, in recent times particularly, about how these pandemics have been a common place in the society for many, many years. But what this co-, but what this particular pandemic does not happen, have in common with the rest of the pandemics that have happened in the history of human, humankind is that we are now living in, I, I mean, arguably, we are now living in a post-truth world. Where, where for for you or for anyone uh, existent in any any part of the world, they are not 100% relied on one particular source of information. And thus, this becomes a major point of, I mean, this completely changes the axis of uh, Harari's two particular themes and the axis where he talks about a potential kind of world one way or the potential kind of world the other way. What do you think this post-truth era will have its impact? How do you think this era will impact our
0: responses and the future of humanity from this. So the question, uh, the idea that we have entered a post-truth era, I do agree with that. Of course, we have. But what's most most uh, pertinent to ask is whether the definitions of the systems that we had before can continue in the post-truth era uh Number one is the idea of democracy. If you look at the article, he talks about under the skin surveillance and over the skin surveillance. Now, if over the skin surveillance is essentially your, uh, is the social media. We have had a movie, called, a documentary called The Great Hack that was made on it and how Cambridge Analytica or public opinion was diverted through the use of data points on the internet. So of course, there was, there was certain kind of surveillance used to uh, sort of distort democratic process. So how do we see democratic process is going to be very important in the post-truth era? Whether, whether the elected representative is actually the democratic, democratically elected representative or not? Because, um, some experts have also pointed out that use of the technology that Cambridge and Altica used was weapons-grade technology and it's, it's just absolutely outrageous. Uh, number two is, What he talks about that with the, uh, you know, the outbreak of this pandemic, we're also seeing that uh, they may come up with technology which can control your, which can tell your body temperature, your feelings, your biological feelings, like when you're laughing, what what makes you laugh, what makes you cry. Uh, these are things that are going to be continuously observed by someone, which also means that they'll also know where to steer the democratic process in order to, so to say, win elections. Um, these are things that I that worry me more uh, than than post truth itself, because we have entered an era. But how do we manage to continue with our old systems in this era? Is 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 the most important question. Yeah, go
2: yeah uh, so this uh, even this question takes me back to uh, the section of the article dealing with trust uh, so uh, you know uh, I, I would like to look at this uh, post truth problem from that perspective so uh, in the section of the article titled they Are soap police uh, what harari says is that billions of people across the world have uh, taken to hand washing regularly and this has happened because the information that was communicated to them was hand washing kills a lot of germs and it is a good way to maintain hygiene and sanitation and avoid diseases and this did not happen because there was a hand washing police per se which said that you know i'll shoot you if you don't wash your hands but that there is a change i mean there has been a change uh, in this uh, respect i mean right now many people have lost trust in their governments i mean for instance, uh, if you look at the uh, United States of America, so uh, for the longest time, the official uh, line was that only the doctors and the uh, patients need to wear masks for uh, to prevent coronavirus. And the rationale that they had uh, given was uh, that the masks are uh, actually quite dangerous. So there might be a layer of germ on germs on the outer side of the masks, and if it is not uh, used properly, it Uh, could increase your chances of infection. So later on, a lot of uh, independent journalists and a lot of thinkers reported that, see, there's not uh, a lot of hard scientific data backing this. I mean, obviously, it's much more dangerous. I mean, the chances of germs accumulating on the outer surface of the mask is uh, dangerous, but uh, which is uh, better with regard to controlling the spread of coronavirus, a large population wearing the mask or only the patients or doctors wearing the mask? This demarcation was not there in, on social media. And it was later found out that the reason the government was uh, putting out this message was uh, because you know the government had not stockpiled enough masks. And the doctors and patients were, uh, you know, there, there, was, there was a shortage of masks for them. And so the government had uh, put out this message. But as soon as this shortage of uh, masks thing was handled, I mean, particularly because of the large cache of masks that came from China, uh, Russia, and also after the us government procured a lot of masks from southeast asia they stopped towing this line and things like this make people lose trust in the government i mean another thing uh, closer back home would be the incident of uh, kashmiri students who came in uh, from outside and they just refused to be tested and put into isolation uh, put into isolation chambers and isolation wards the reason being that they had a completely lost uh, trust in the government. I mean, it is quite possible that they might have been under the impression that the uh, government uh, trying to arrest us uh, on the uh, pretense of putting us in isolation wards. So I think uh, this is uh, like a really jarring uh, hypothesis and a very important uh, point that has come up in his article and uh, during this pandemic that we uh, might see a lack of trust between the government, the people, the institutions as well as the media i mean you just need to turn on the news today and see what is uh, being peddled as the news right now i mean after the tablighi uh, jamaat incident the you know the narrative has taken a strong communal turn and you know that makes the uh, news uh, companies and news
1: organizations much less trustworthy why um Thanks guys. I think this was a good sense of an argument, but I think first of all, um, I personally understand why the US towed the line that it towed. I mean, that country basically stockpiled on toilet papers for some reason, but we'll get to that later. Second, I think, uh, while both of you make perfect sense in your argument, I think that there's still something missing. There's a certain access that's still missing. While we can go on about trust and, uh, the trust in the institutions and the people and also about how these institutions are not really getting up to the mark in these circumstances. And that is why people's faith is jarring in these institutions. I would still like to point out to another direction, which might help our case with this first particular instance, is the increased uh, amount of surveillance that will happen. As Harari writes in his article, the -the under-the-skin surveillance is now much more potent than uh, over-the-skin surveillance. And that's dangerous on two accounts. And while I'm not particularly... I'm not particularly decisive about which, which of these two instances uh, is much more dangerous. I still think that there's some sort of a debate that can still be had over here. For instance, let's talk about which is the more dangerous one out of the two under the skin surveillance. Is it the large corporations that is already happening? in At least the over-the-skin surveillance is already happening. What is more dangerous? The under-the-skin surveillance by these large, absolutely large corporations to uh, identify our tastes, our preferences, what we like, what we don't like. Uh, for marketing purposes, as we already already seen a number of social media apps, or the 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 under-the-skin surveillance by the government, institutions and authorities to keep track of its people. Now, in an ever-changing society, we also understand that there is an increasing amount of dissent dissent in all these major countries. And that becomes a problematic instance where these under-the-skin surveillance can definitely be uh, efficiently utilized. And in that sense... It might be, it might pose an even larger danger to the cause of the people.
0: What do you think about this, Anas? I, I agree with you totally, but given the question that you have asked, uh, here, here's what, here's an example I'd like to put in. Uh, number one, governments exercise monopoly over force, or, uh, big corporations don't. And if they do, they do it through the instrumentality of government sort of cronyism involved there. So if the government has the, this data, the, the data that you're talking about under the skin surveillance and the government has it, it's absolutely difficult for you to find a way or hold someone accountable until unless you have a very strong judicial system. And that's also asking the system that, listen, you did this wrong. I want you to punish you. So, you know, I want you to bring to justice. So, you know, may, will you please bring yourself to justice? On, in another situation, then we just take an example of the Cambridge Analytica situation. we had a private organization which had data somehow managed to get data and used it and let's let's also not forget that the government uh, hired that institution or people who are part of the government or would have been part of the government hired this institution this private body to do something like this now of course i do not want to make a choice but if i were to make a choice i would be okay with my data being in the hands of private organizations or big corporates or whatever you call it, as long as they don't exercise monopoly or force, which government does exercise in every case. So that that fundamental difference has to be looked at. All this hue and cry about uh, Cambridge Analytica should not overshadow the facts or the amount of surveillance that the government does on its own citizens and highlighting greater good and public interest and telling us that, you know, this is the only way to get out of this problem or the crisis. Sometimes the crisis does not even exist, uh, like, like the NRC data or, or the crisis that we, that the government wants us to believe that immigration is such a disaster in our country that they are taking away our jobs and, and multiple made up Artificial construct. So, yeah, that's my view. Maybe Subo can add. So, uh, first of all, I
2: completely agree with Anas on this. I think since the government has the monopoly over the use of force, the government is in a much stronger position to misuse the data and uh, and misuse surveillance uh, in general. So uh, in context of this article, uh, in the section over the skin versus under the skin surveillance, uh, Harari points out this very interesting thing. So when the pandemic first uh, broke out and uh, when the Israeli legislature was uh, taking stock of the situation and uh, making plans how, how it would go about in tackling this crisis netanyahu proposed that they introduce the uh, surveillance tactics employed during war uh, and in war torn areas and uh, the surveillance tactics that they employ on their enemies on their own citizens so the obviously the legislature disagreed to that but then netanyahu pushed it through some instrument some emergency decree you know he had the provision to use an emergency decree to push this through so this is just an example to show you know, how powerful the government is and uh, you know in some regard the concept of checks and balances might also be a, a lie in this sense because i mean essentially there was no one no body or no uh, organization institution in israel to stop Netanyahu from doing this. So that is it. I think the uh, government is in a much stronger position to misuse the data and overextend in terms of surveillance. Also, another thing, Since uh, we have brought up this uh, idea of private organizations and uh, corporations controlling a large amount of data and how helpless we are uh, with regard to it, that is also a very pertinent issue. And, you know, my take on it is essentially to ascertain the ownership of data. You know, I personally feel that uh, jurisprudence and the legislation around uh, this subject is still behind in in terms of the technology that is available to these corporations. What they can do technologically, the judiciary cannot do uh, legally. So, I mean, I think my take on this would be if somehow we were able to ascertain the ownership of data, we might be able to see solution a common ground in this regard. So, for instance, my personal data, you know, the uh, my heart rate and my pulse and other things that are measured by my Fitbit, If I have ownership of that data and if the, you know, and if the organization that owns this data, I mean, the organization whose Fitbit I'm wearing, if they have ownership of this data and they wish to sell this data to some other organization, I mean, I need to receive a certain portion of the revenue or profit or whatever. So that way we might be able to arrive at a common ground.
1: So while you guys were talking, I, I thought of another instance where this can be a powerful. And I don't think I can make a choice between the two. I think both of them can be equally destruct- destructive in their own sense. I still feel that apart from our respective FBI agents listening to our conversation right now, I don't think any other country in the world apart from the United States of America has the sort of infrastructure or even China now, uh, to continue tracking this under-the-skin surveillance for a a long period of time for for its large population. And I think that's where the institutions and the corporations come into. I think it's still problematic. I'm not suggesting a 100% cronism case. Sometimes there are instances where the the courts in uh, even the United States of America, the federal court has forced these corporations or issued a decree asking them to release data pertaining to someone's uh, you know someone's details, someone's activity. I think that's equally dangerous. While Apple has, uh, Apple and Google are actively collecting a large amount of user data for their own purpose. I still think that Apple has stood, uh, stood its ground a number of times when such a decree has been passed and they have contested it, uh, saying that this is not an information that can be made available to a large corp uh, to the government institution, which is good. But I don't think that can be case in a large number of other countries. I think it's still problematic where large corporations who are accessing and analyzing and uh, uh, interpreting this data, I think it's still prone to a large number of government institutions under which they function to still manipulate and get that data, even if they do not have the infrastructure to directly correlate or pick up that data from the masses. I still think that they they can still use the institutions, their own institutions to like the code, who extend their hand over to the data that is being all collected by these other organizations? I still think that's a very very pertinent issue.
2: Yeah, I would just like to make a small point to what, just add on to what Karan said. Uh, I see a dichotomy in this. So, for instance, there can be two scenarios. In a normal scenario, the organization like Facebook, Google, Apple, uh, Xiaomi, whatever, is uh, taking uh, user data. And the rationale behind this is that we are taking the user data to improve the user experience, which is not wrong. You know, if Facebook is taking user data from us, it is just trying to find out what are our likes and dislikes and design the content in that manner, that is why your Facebook feed and my Facebook feed are different. So that is what they're trying to do, trying to make the user experience better for us, the user. But this sets precedent for them to control user data, which is problematic in times of a crisis. So, for instance, during the NRC riots, the Facebook has been collecting, you know, user data. And right now, uh, during the NRC riot, the public is actually divided on the basis of their uh, uh, political beliefs and behaviors. Facebook actually has access to that data which could you know help them identify which person stands on which side of the fence which puts them in a very powerful position at the time of the crisis so that creates a very problem no i would not say problematic but a very conflicting situation
0: okay so i fundamentally disagree with harari when he concludes his article and talks about trust as a libertarian my understanding is very clear uh, incentives matter trust is not a prologue, it's an epilogue. So you trust the government to do its job when you know that the right kind of incentives are available to the government and to you to trust it. Um, that's a very important, uh, disagreement I have with Harari's, um, article. He romanticizes the idea of people trusting the government. Um, most of the places where government trust has helped the crisis are countries where we have good rule of law system, South Korea, open and transparent and free society. And also, if you look at the example of, uh, if you want to talk about civic trust, then you have to go and look at the Nordic example of how they trust their institutions. They trust their institutions because right kind of incentives are involved into their institutions. We have uh, governments that are bound by the rule of law. So that's where I disagree, Uh, the soap police, I mean, the example of the soap police is people trusted their government with the right kind of information because of a certain structural system, which is why people started washing their hands when they received a certain kind of information about washing their hands. So I I think that's an important disagreement, although I uh, he hasn't built upon why he talks about trust, but he, if he uses trust as the reference point of taking, uh, you know, reference point, then I would disagree. No, trust will come, only you have good, right kind of incentive. For example, people in China are going to be skeptical about the state. If I would live in a communist state like that, I'm going to be skeptical because um, what I see in front of my eyes is a is dystopian uh, 1984 sovereign state and why would I trust such a state? even there's no reason for me to trust it because i know when that state comes for me there will be no rule of law to protect me that's where i would want to take the conversation is, is trust really all that important or maybe there's something deeper to it
1: so uh, when you talk about incentives uh while i completely disagree with the ending as you said about harari's article and the romanticization of trust with the government i disagree with that i still think there is a certain change in the society and with that certain change in the society, I also think that incentives are changing, not just for the government institutions, but also for individuals. And that really puts things into perspective with with as respect to how do we go about it from this point. With that said, I still think that our concerns clearly highlight that we are very conscious about the fact that we are living in a post-truth era, which is true. But again, I mean, even though we are conscious and even though we know the basics of a post-truth era, we are not fundamentally clear as to how far reaching this post-truth era is and that's where our trust becomes precarious i mean i don't particularly trust anyone right now in the face of changing global politics changing geopolitics changing incentives changing corporations and at that point of time i might sound like some sort of a pessimistic guy but i'm not really one because i'm still trying to figure out how this post-truth era unfolds and in that sense it becomes particularly impressive as to how far reaching this could go and with that said, I think it's also important for us to realize how and when should we shape our trust. What kind of institutions? What kind of incentive should be allowed to change our trust? And I think this this particular line of thinking will be different for every single individual on this on this earth. I mean, a lot of priorities are not changing. A lot of incentives are not changing. And in that sense, trust also becomes a very dynamic issue rather than just a simple. Um, idea based upon our upbringing, our culture, I mean, South Korean culture has been a pretty open society ever since the 1950s. It has been a very transparent and open society. I mean, sure, it has made progress in terms of how open it has been over the years, but it's still referring a lot to its culture and its people and its priorities. With that said, I think even the trust is a dynamic factor now. And I think that's for me. One of the biggest cons of a post-truth era because that trust can be so dynamic that sometimes we may, or uh, in a situation that um, that might not have happened, let's say twenty years ago, and that becomes a problematic instance because we do not have a uh, the kind of uh, you know absolute information access to information across the board. We don't. Uh, let's be honest with that. That is, that is a privilege and a problem of first world country. But there also needs to be an open source analysis as to how do we process that information that is even accessible to us. And that becomes our local stand-eye of our trust building with not just the government authorities, but also with individuals. What do you think, Shubha?
2: Obviously, I agree with the points that Anas and uh, yourself made. Uh, but towards the end, you touched upon a very interesting thing. And I would like to just build up on that the problem of information asymmetry. Uh, so, yeah, the trust uh, trust can be understood and uh, envisioned uh, from the lens of incentives as well as from the lens of information. So, as long as there's an information asymmetry between the government, institutions, media, and the public, and every actor uh, is aware of this asymmetry, there would be a lack of trust. On a lighter tone, that is why aliens are such a big deal. Some people feel that the government knows about aliens, and it has information about aliens, but it is hiding it Uh, on those lines. Uh, So yeah, this uh, information asymmetry actually, uh, and how it breeds uh, distrust uh, also uh, helps us make a segue to a small discussion on the last part of the article, that is the global plan. So, uh, and uh, during the times of this pandemic, we are uh, seeing a a very interesting dichotomy and I would like both of you to just comment on that. We are seeing nationalistic isolation. That is countries are closing their borders, extreme uh, nationalistic narratives all across the media. We need to protect our country. The foreigners brought this disease with them. Which Chinese are responsible? Things like that, and also there is evidence of global solidarity. Scientists and virologists, doctors, biotechnology professionals, and other uh, disciplines of science and scientists are, are all across the world are working to work together towards finding this cure. I mean, we discussed this. I think we discussed this last time. Anyone who is doing anything in this world right now is focused on finding a cure to and focus on uh, finding a cure cure to coronavirus and mitigating this crisis. So what is your take on this strange situation that you're seeing right now? We are seeing nationalistic isolation, but there is also a global solidarity towards arriving at a cure.
0: So, I mean, my answer would be very brief. I read something that I read today and you have uh, raised that question, which was also in the article. And uh, there's John uh, uh, Don Boudreau, Donald Boudreau, Boudreau he, has, uh, he has a blog article where he talked about this particular issue. And, and he uses a very interesting analogy. He says, to argue that the coronavirus means we would be better off with less globalization is like arguing that a power failure shows we are too dependent on electricity and thus we should go back to private generators of candles. So I think that beautifully sums up the idea that uh, we should close just because something happened of globalization and go back to Stone Age where we're isolated. In, in our own little bubbles, Um, I don't think that's going to be a very wise choice. As you say, global solidarity, global trade, open borders, these are very fundamental freedoms that uh, should not be given away that easily because they, they are what, could, what I would call the edifice of our civilization today. Yes, Karan. Yeah,
1: so, uh, wrap this up very quickly. I understand and agree with what Subo mentions in its, uh, in its inherent sense, but I think there's, there's a certain problem that we are definitely missing. The national, the global solidarity that is being shown is by a group of people who are no doubtably one of the three of the earth. I mean, there are doctors, virologists who are currently working on a cure and uh, they are trying to figure out a way for humanity to bypass this time of crisis. But what is also clearly important is that these people who are showing that global solidarity are not in positions of power. They are not engaged in a tussle over global geopolitics or even national ones, they're not engaged In power grabbing or or uh, you know trying to wrest control of large number of resources in a country, and that is I think a more pertinent point because while the global solidarity is best and appreciated, they are still not calling the shots. They I mean they are still far they are still far behind calling the shots. And in that sense, it becomes a problem of our trust with the government and the individuals because a I mean for me personally, my trust has my priority of a trust is with people who are in power because that is something I mean my trust with the current people in currently in power, it has to be the first and foremost thing that I'm concerned about because that will set the tone and if my trust is the dynamic trust that I have, with, let's say a sports person, that is not my priority right now. But while that is a great personal joy, those people are not calling the shots. And that is I think uh, where I would like to wrap up this particular session.
0: Thank you so much Karan and Subo. So this was our second episode. On the Three Men on Air podcast, fancy name, and uh, yes, I think this uh, was an interesting one. And so, to the listener, if you have come this far, congratulations! Read the article, and I hope you enjoyed it. Thank you so much, guys.